You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. I am pleased to welcome George Van Antwerp, who leads the future pharmacy strategy at Deloitte Consulting to our podcast today. George shares his vision for the future pharmacy, the opportunities and the challenges, and he shares his thoughts on interoperability and health equity. Take health equity, for example. George says that when you have a physician or a pharmacist who looks like you and is part of your community, you're more likely to engage with them. You're more likely to have better outcomes. And better outcomes is exactly what this episode is all about. Whether it's the future of pharmacy or interoperability or health equity or the healthcare sector altogether. So let's get into it. George, it is great to have you on the show today. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. When we met recently, I know I was taken by your focus on the future of pharmacy. As you know, this show is focused on charting a better way in healthcare, which is something you've dedicated your career to. Before we dive in, though, into the future of pharmacy, I'd like to look back a little bit and see where you came from. Where'd you grow up? We noticed on your LinkedIn page that you have a sepia-colored image of a mid-20th century Van Antwerp pharmacy. So you must have started somewhere in pharmacy, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, so first up, I start with the growing up, born in Brazil, and then moved back to Detroit when my parents uh, came back from serving in the Peace Corps. I didn't know that I had actually anybody in the family that was involved in pharmacy. Nobody in my direct relatives were, but as I'm a little bit of a genealogy geek and I dug into my family history, I've found there's the picture there of a pharmacy in Kalamazoo, Michigan. There was Vans Pharmacy in Benton Harbor, Michigan that just closed and was owned by three generations of pharmacists. There's a Van Antwerp Pharmacy, and you can still see the Van Antwerp Building in Mobile, Alabama. There was a Van Antwerp's Pharmacy in Kansas. So there's lots of pharmacy history that I can now conveniently uh, put into my story. I uh, grew up, went to school in Detroit, went to the University of Michigan, moved to St. Louis for grad school, thought I wanted to be an architect. My mentor at the time pulled me into healthcare, um, started working with some health plans and others. Uh, it makes me feel very old to say my first healthcare role was convincing health plans why they should have a website because consumers would actually come and use the internet for healthcare. And most of them were very skeptical. My first role in pharmacy back in 2001 was some friends of mine at Express Scripts right after RX Hub had been formed as the predecessor to SureScripts said, hey, you know, why don't you come work with us here? We're doing this e-prescribing and, you know, your knowledge of healthcare and technology might be really interesting. And honestly, before that, I knew very little about healthcare or about pharmacy and then kind of jumped in in 2001. The other piece that we thought was really interesting in looking at your background and all of that is, you know, you've said you're not much of an ivory tower person and that you follow the da Vinci approach. Can you explain that? I feel like a lot of the problems in healthcare are exasperated because those of us that sit behind a computer screen at the large healthcare companies are designing things that seem logical to us or they're optimized from a 
big company perspective, but putting ourselves in the shoes of somebody else that we may not understand, the, the person that's struggling with access to food and we're trying to get them to be adherent or somebody I was, you know, we were doing some work with dual eligibles recently and, you know, talking to one of the patients, they talked about how they have to take two buses to get to a pharmacy to fill their prescription. And I don't think most of us understand that transportation challenge of well, what happens now if I took two buses and show up and the script's not ready. And I think then if you understand, you know, some of Da Vinci's approaches to things, there was a book I read, you know, a while ago called How to Think Like Da Vinci by Michael Gelb. And it was really interesting in that it laid out, I think it was seven different things of how Da Vinci approached problem solving. It's, you know, be curious, you know, think about how to experiment and try different things, you know, sharpen your senses by really being aware of what's around you, you know, be comfortable with ambiguity, you know, balance art and science, develop your mind and body and understand the big picture. And for me, those have been very consistent things, whether it's pharmacy, healthcare, architecture, you know, understanding those and challenging myself to think differently is important. Oh, I love that. And I love that you're doing some exciting work leading Deloitte's future pharmacy strategy. In your career, you've obviously done some deep thinking and research on the subject, and it's a real treat to have you share your vision with our audience. So you recently wrote a perspectives piece for Deloitte on the future of pharmacy with the tagline, Disruption Creates Transformative Opportunities and Challenges. Can you unpack that for us? I must admit, you know, we, Deloitte started looking, you know, maybe two years before the pandemic, so back in maybe 2018, at kind of the future of health. And, you know, very broadly, it was putting the consumer at the center, but also data at the center. And so I began to take that in my work with pharmacies and on the topic of pharmacy and say, all right, so what does that mean? You know, today we have 60 some thousand pharmacies. They're made up of people that are part of that neighborhood and part of that environment. And so the question was, all right, so if we believe this is going to change, what does that mean for them? You know, for many years, you know, pharmacists have talked about operating at the top of their license, but you know, I think they always were constrained by wanting to be recognized as providers, which you know, I think they should be, by the way. I think the question was not, how do we worry about the constraint, but what could it be if I looked out 10, 20 years? And you know, how could they have time to engage patients differently? What data would they need to talk to the patient differently? What, how far could they push the spectrum of diagnosis, of collaboration with providers, of, you know, being able to do more and more? You said, if you look 10 years out, what does it look like for the pharmacist? What does it look like in 10 years that it doesn't look like today? I personally think, you know, for, you know, if you're sitting in a community pharmacy today and or you're an owner of one store or even a small chain, the reimbursement pressures have been massive over the past decade. So we've seen, when I came into the industry, you know, it was about 50-50 generics and brands. You know, we're now at 90% generics, 91% generics. You got 2 or 3% specialty drugs. So the drug mix has switched significantly. If you look forward a few years at you know, the personalized medicine, precision medicine, pharmacogenomics, cell and gene therapy drugs, that mix is going to continue to change where the majority of spend sits in, you know, those particular buckets. And so I think looking forward, the opportunity for the pharmacist 
to worry much less about the traditional oral solid generic, where those are either filled centrally, where they're prepackaged and simply labeled at the store. And so you don't have, you know, PhD level, you know, pharmacists that are doctors counting pills and you don't have them sitting on the phone with, you know, the payer talking about prior authorization or dealing with an IVR system. My view is in the future, you know, most of that stuff is automated and handled behind the scenes and their time is freed up to counsel patients, talk to patients, focus on the first couple fills, which is when somebody's trying to understand the disease, they're trying to understand the medication, they're dealing with, you know, a potential side effect. So from a patient point of view, I've seen, I know that you've, you've spent some time thinking about this too. We've, from the pharmacist point of view, what's different, what's different from the patient point of view? We go in now, we pick up our medication and we see the pharmacist on the phone. Now, in 10 years, we go to the pharmacy and what happens that's different as a, as a patient? Yeah, I think it, in the future, I would envision I go into the pharmacy and one, I actually get to talk to a pharmacist. Um, two, the pharmacist has more of my data. So if they now understand, you know, George, you came in, you're a diabetic, you have a, you're not taking a statin. They see that gap in care. And that's, you know, the big example everybody always uses. But, you know, what about the example of, hey, you know, now I have your lab values and maybe I'm able to say, you know, it's interesting. It looks like your, you know, cholesterol has spiked. Is that, have you changed your diet? Or they can do some counseling. They can talk about nutrition. The power we know that, Behavioral health, mental health is a real challenge across the country, especially become really a, a spotlight post-COVID. You know, some of that can be assessed and it can be assessed much better in a face-to-face -face visual interaction with the patient. You can even use technology like voice cadence and things like that to predict depression with pretty good skill. So if the patient-pharmacist interaction changes and they can help to assess social determinants of health, assess you know, risk of depression, they can route the patient to nutrition in the store, route them to social support networks within the community. They can address gaps in care and they can then share that data back with a care team that the pharmacy is actually part of, not just somebody that happens to provide, you know, input or just fill a prescription. And it looks a lot more like the clinical pharmacist you might see in a hospital system today. We just took a look at the primary care shortage in America across all the counties in the country. And if you look at all the counties in the country, almost 50% have less than one primary care physician per 1,500 population. Now, I mean, most physicians maybe, from what we understand, carry 500, maybe a little more, and that's a lot in their practice. 1,500 is a lot. Um, and interestingly, 61% of those counties that have shortages based on those parameters of primary care physicians have some higher density of pharmacy. So isn't that interesting? You've got this primary care physician shortage and pharmacy that is not ready to provide all primary care services, but certainly ready to help be part of the care team. You know, what opportunities do you see for pharmacists to operate at the full scope of their license and help with this shortage that is here and now today? As I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a study that Stanford did a couple of years ago where physicians felt that 30% of their tasks could be fully automated by 
you know, AI in the future. So, you know, if they believe that 30% of their tasks can be automated by AI, there's certainly those plus more that perhaps a pharmacist or someone else could take on. So as you begin to think about the tech human complement and how that has to divide out by disease state. So you probably don't have a pharmacist tomorrow diagnosing cancer and the tumor type and stage, but you may look at, well, what's the ability to diagnose a strep or diagnose that they have high blood pressure or something like that. And so as you begin to get into conditions and opportunity to take lab results, to identify gaps, to do a lot more, honestly, helping the physician to get and make the right prescription choice. I think about you know years ago when I was at Express Script Show, one time a prescription came in that just said, pick the PPI that is on formulary. The physician didn't really care. They may use one that they had an experience with or were used to prescribing. But at the end of the day, they just wanted a proton pump inhibitor that helped the patient with their GERD, that cost them the least amount of money that was on formulary. And so as you think about some of that and the ability, some of the things you guys are already doing with SureScripts in terms of pushing that information, the real-time benefit check to the prescriber, how do we think about how the prescriber will make different choices because of that and what the pharmacist opportunity is to see that same information and perhaps be a clinician talking to the physician that says, well, I see you didn't choose this choice. Have you thought about this? Or, you know, having a more detailed discussion with them, which today is often not welcome and doesn't happen. There's a Columbia University report that says that about three quarters of physicians and nurse practitioners expect that pharmacists will be more regularly included in care teams by 2030. Is there like a list of things that that pharmacists can do that's at the full scope of their practice that is that is you know, that we're looking across the country to either get paid for or to, um, and or, you know, be enabled to do? Is there a list or are there many things? We created a maturity model that kind of laid out, you know, four different levels of responsibility that we've used pretty broadly. And I think generally aligns and it kind of goes from, you know, traditional what I'd call, you know, fill and DUR type of services that everybody did to, where most pharmacies are today around medication management. So addressing adherence, thinking about MTM, some therapeutic interchange, you know, a little bit more focus these days on de-prescribing and, you know, identifying somebody that may not need to be on a medication or doing some of the med reconciliation post-discharge. I would say the next two phases where we see people going into are one is much more around care management. You know, I actually see the pharmacist as care manager embedded in the community. We talked a little bit about, you know, some of the mental health, but you could collect vital signs. You could help prescribe at-home tests. You're seeing more and more at-home tests. You could talk about interpretation of test results and sharing that with the patient. Um, You've seen some things like diabetic retinopathy cameras that can be put into retail pharmacy. You could talk about there's been collaborative practice agreements for years that have been used. And then I think the final stage, if you will, is really moving into, you know, like you talked about, you can see pharmacists that get embedded into a provider. Let's change to the to what needs to happen to enable this at, at higher volume. Can we just talk first about policy? What are your thoughts around where we are from a policy perspective on this? 
Yeah, I think you know, one of the most important things which has been out there for years is getting you know pharmacists to be recognized as providers you know, from a Medicare, Medicaid perspective, recognize at the state level, you know, this is going to change how accreditation is tracked and managed. And so I think, you know, A, there's a federal push around that, but also there's a state level push. But I think the critical point is that has often stopped people from thinking how they can pay and use, you know, pharmacists in a different way today. So I think it's important that, you know, yes, that should happen, they can do things as a payer, as an employer, as others in the short term to engage. And you are seeing some start to push that envelope. Do you want to talk a little bit about the collaborative practice agreements that you're seeing? I think collaborative practice agreements are a nice formal relationship, which can be leveraged. The challenge, of course, is that CPAs are you know, a one-to-one relationship. So it's one physician, one pharmacist. And so that it's a really hard model to scale. It gives great flexibility, and you know, I've certainly seen some people using it in different settings, but if that physician has to sign off on each pharmacist, you're now creating a very different experience. Can you define collaborative practice agreement so the audience all knows what we mean by that? Essentially a you know, contract between a physician and a pharmacist that allows them to do certain activities under the supervision or pre-approval of the physician. And that allows the pharmacist, for example, to change the prescription. If I, pharmacist, have a relationship with Dr. Smith and she sends me a patient on one prescription and I think that based on formulary or based on step therapy or prior approval, a different option makes more sense, I already have approval to make that change under the CPA. And so it's both a oversight and pre-approval for a certain predefined set of activities. Let's move to payment. What needs to be done to have pharmacists be paid for these more clinically oriented care settings? Yeah, I think, and this is probably the most critical one in the in the short term. I mean, obviously we have to create time and space for the pharmacist to be able to do cognitive services, but you know they do some of these today without being paid in many cases. And so if we want them to scale that up, there, there needs to be a payment strategy. And I think you know, this has to happen in a couple of ways. One, we have to define the value of the tasks or the interaction. You know, two, we have to think about how do we underwrite those costs into our health plan financial model? Because at the end of the day, if we can't value them, show an ROI and put them into the underwriting model, you know, it's going to be hard to successfully scale that up. And then I think third, you know, there's no big bucket of money just sitting out there waiting to be you know, reassigned to somebody to spend. So we have to think about where is our money today not being as productively deployed that shifting it to the pharmacist could drive a better result. In another presentation I gave at the APHA, I talked a lot about looking at how much health plans spend on member communications, talking about clinical programs in letter campaigns that are often not that effective in outbound calls that may not be picked up and responded to in other communications. And if you were able to look at shifting those dollars and some of the case management and disease management dollars to the pharmacist to be able to say, look, you're sitting at the counter talking to somebody and or on the phone, but you have a different level of trust than I do as a health plan. How do I leverage that relationship and that trust to get a patient into a program engaged and actually taking action 
I think those dollars, the ROI on those dollars would be much more effectively spent with the pharmacist. Well, let's move to product. You know, we're thinking about the health information technology interoperability clearly being needed to support this work. What are some of your thoughts on how smarter technology can empower pharmacists with the tools, the technologies they need? I think the first most important thing is pharmacists need access to an integrated data set that is pharmacy data, medical claims, lab data, social determinants of health data, perhaps some demographic data. So A, you're right. They have to have a complete understanding of the patient that's standing in front of them. Second, you know, we know that pharmacists are really busy today, especially in, you know, certain stores. Let's assume you can free up time and now you've given data to the pharmacist. There has to be some way to, you know, prioritize and kind of recommend to them in a real-time setting, call it next best action of here's the thing that you should do for George. You can't give George 10 things to address. Here's the one thing to talk about with them that's the most important. And so have the data, prioritize the data, and then really help them personalize the interaction. Social determinants of health, you've mentioned a few times. So can you talk about the role of social determinants of health in the pharmacy uh, and the opportunity that having that information presents? Social determinants of health are part of a bigger health equity problem that we have. We know that at least the report we recently did said, you know, that the cost of health inequities today in the U.S. is about $320 billion. If you look at low-income patients or minority patients that go to a physician, they're 30 to 40% less likely to be engaged in a conversation about treatment choices. So we know that the way they engage with the provider and with the system, you know, is very different than others. You know, we know also that when you have a physician or a pharmacist or someone that looks like you and is part of your community, you're more likely to engage with them. There was a really interesting report out recently around looking at Black physicians and communities with more Black physicians had better health outcomes. Honestly, whether the Black patient went to that same physician or not. And so you start to see just a different focus. And that's why social determinants of health data is so important, because we have to understand where those discrepancies are, where there are differences. And then we have to make sure, especially as we move to AI and automation, that we really address systemic biases that can exist in the system and that we think about how to address those. In a recent tweet of yours, you mentioned that we are digitally connected and yet socially isolated. What did you mean? Yeah, so I think if you think about it today, there's so much, you know, if you have kids or others, you experience, yeah, my kids, when they were teenagers, they knew the kids next door, but wouldn't ever actually talk to the kids. They would, but they'd interact with them on social media. And I think, you know, as we think about extrapolating that to a healthcare perspective, if we start to make healthcare purely digital and purely technology, we've eliminated the humanity of healthcare. And I believe health is art and science and that motivating consumers to take action requires an understanding of why they want to do something. I think one of the examples person I've worked with a bunch over the years always used was retirement. You know, when you go into retirement, they don't say, well, what's your you know, number? They talk about, well, what is it that you want to have retirement be about? Is it about your grandkids? Is it about legacy? Is it about being able to travel? Now let's back into what it will take to get there. 
And I don't think, you know, sometimes it's too easy to digitally just say, well, here's what I want, but not understand why and how do we motivate somebody by understanding them as a human. Where do you see things working? What's exciting you today? I mean, I think one of the most exciting things today is just the amount of clinical innovation that's happening. So, you know, we could talk about cell and gene therapy drugs and, you know, kind of precision medicine, but there's even, you know, when I was doing the research on the future of pharmacy and, you know, kind of went down the clinical vein, I remember interviewing this one person and he was working on 3D printed bacteria that could be ingested into the body and then he could control the bacteria to attack specific cancer cells. And so it was still, it was in like animal trials at the time, but I mean, that to me that someone could even imagine 3D printing bacteria and controlling them robotically from outside the body was just amazing. Leaders like yourself in the industry, you got to be creative. You've talked about the need to be creative, combine that left brain, right brain approach. Where do you go for inspiration, for creativity? How do you get your inspiration? I mean, for me, creativity is yeah, really understanding things both in the industry and out of the industry, talking to you know lots of people. I'm very much a you know, people person. I like to hear what challenges people have, how they're thinking about it. I love to to brainstorm. I mean, the you know, the thing for me that gets me excited in the morning is, you know, getting up and finding a problem that nobody's solved or hasn't figured out how to solve and saying, okay, I think we can figure that out. And so, you know, going after those complex problems and, you know, honestly figuring out how to develop the next generation of leaders are things that for me are, you know, passionate. I've been very lucky to have a bunch of mentors that brought me into healthcare that challenged me to think differently. And so, you know, thinking about how I do that for my teams and others is really important to me. Well, what's on the horizon for you? It's a good question. Yeah, I, I think there's so much to be done in the in the pharmacy space. For me, I'd love to figure out what do some of these broader ecosystem collaborations look like? How do we think differently about the care models uh, that we talk about? And what are the couple real practical, simple things that you know can be changed? And you know, I'm hoping that some of that's really innovative technology. I mean, there's really cool things happening around augmented reality and virtual reality the interesting things happening around AI, I think as those things become the norm and become integrated in a simple way that everybody can access, because we have to, we always have to remember as we get into technology that, you know, we can't develop technology-centric solutions that, you know, create more health inequities, you know, but that to me, the way the world is thinking now is so exciting. And so I, I just continue to look for how do I, push myself to, to learn differently and, you know, think differently about the problems. We really appreciate your time here. Insightful and clearly the future is bright, though we've got a lot of work to do. I want to echo something you said, that the way the world is thinking now is so exciting. And really, that's what this podcast is all about thinking differently about healthcare, finding better ways to advance healthcare. From my perspective, this starts by asking the types of questions you've been asking. I'll restate three of my favorites here. What does the role of a pharmacist look like in patient care 10 or 20 years down the road from today? 
How can we make it easier to exchange patient information for doctors and pharmacists and other caregivers so they have what they need when and where they need it? And how can we close gaps in health equity so that everyone gets the care they need? By asking intelligent questions like these, by staying open and curious, I believe we'll get where we want to go. So I want to thank you for being on our show, George, and for sharing your experience with us. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart Talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.